RTI International's Justice Practice Area presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In episode three of our Trauma-Informed Research Methods mini-season, Just Science sat down with Dr. Rebecca Campbell, a professor of psychology at Michigan State University, to discuss the importance of taking a trauma-informed approach when managing a research team. For research staff who are regularly exposed to traumatic material, it can be difficult to recognize and respond to signs of their own vicarious trauma. While there is no perfect roadmap for navigating trauma-informed project management, research leaders are continuing to explore strategies for mitigating vicarious trauma for their team. Listen along as Dr. Campbell describes her career-long learning process for creating a trauma-informed research environment, how to recognize the signs that you or someone on your research team may need a break, and where to find resources for learning more about vicarious trauma. This episode is funded by RT International's Justice Practice Area. Some content in this podcast may be considered sensitive and may evoke emotional responses or may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Here are your hosts, Jacqueline Houston Kolnick and Hannah Feeney. Hello, and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Jacqueline Houston Kolnick, and I'm here with my co-host today, Hannah Feeney. We are community psychologists at RTI International in the Victimization and Response Program. Today, we will be continuing our conversation on trauma-informed methods by diving into a topic that is often overlooked. That's right. We will be discussing how to run and support project teams in a trauma-informed way. Here to discuss this super important topic is Dr. Rebecca Campbell of Michigan State University. Welcome, Becky. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. You're welcome. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, for Hannah and I, you need no introduction because we both know you from your legendary research and because we share so many connections in the gender-based violence space. But for our listeners, can you tell us about yourself and who you are? Sure. I'm a professor at Michigan State University. I'm also a community psychologist, so that means that I do my research out in the field. I don't do any lab work. I do work in community settings, legal settings, medical settings, nonprofit agencies, and I've been studying sexual violence for about 30 years now. So I look at how sexual assault survivors seek help from their communities and how those help-seeking interactions unfold. And some of your work, I know in my career, has been so foundational. Some of the um, articles you've written about survivors' perspectives about research, I think, have been super formative for the field. It's just been really exciting to read your work and great to talk to you today. Thank you. So, Becky, as you know, this podcast is about trauma-informed approaches, trauma-informed research methods, and the different ways we come to this work But generally speaking, trauma-informed is a phrase that's used a lot and differently by different people. So when you use this terminology, what do you mean? Right. It is definitely a buzzword. I hear it all the time. I hear it in the research space. I hear it in the service space. I hear policymakers and funders saying it. And every time it comes up, I always want to sort of pause somebody and ask them, what do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. So I appreciate that question because it's important. For me, it comes back to a foundational definition that came out in 2014 from SAMHSA, and that's the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And I think they had a really useful way of defining trauma-informed, and I always try to go back to it as my touchstone. 
So they said being trauma-informed means that you realize the impact that trauma has on people. And that's a really important place to start is that realization because it's very easy for frontline providers to realize that trauma has an impact on people because they're working with survivors of different types of trauma. But I think it gets harder in the research space to acknowledge and to realize that our day in and day out exposure to people who are experience violence, victimization, and suffering affects us too. So trauma-informed first and foremost means you need to realize that it really does have a wide-ranging impact. The second part of the SAMHSA definition is, is that you need to recognize the signs and symptoms. And again, very straightforward to do in a service setting, much harder to do, I think, in a research setting. And I think it's harder in a research setting because so much of our training as researchers is about hiding our feelings, hiding our emotions, being the proper scientists. So many of us go through school being trained to be objective, to have distance. So the idea that we would have any kind of trauma impact is really antithetical to what we were trained to do. It's really almost shameful. And so people don't want to recognize the signs and symptoms in themselves. And I think a lot of researchers don't want to see it in their research teams. So they really have to sort of be willing to recognize those signs and symptoms. So what are those? Irritability, trying to shy away from work. For some people, they get very withdrawn. They start giving very brief answers in research team meetings their schedule suddenly becomes less and less and less and less available. And that's often a way that I see it in a research setting. And then once you've recognized it, SAMHSA says you need to respond. You need to respond by integrating what you know about trauma into your work. And again, I think that's ironically very hard for researchers. We read all of the stuff about trauma. We could cite chapter and verse and citations and everything about trauma. But when we see it in ourselves and in our research teams and our colleagues, I think it becomes a little harder because we just sort of focus on this idea that, well, we just have to do the work. We have a deadline. We have a deliverable. We need to do these things. And you need to respond differently than that. And you need to respond by taking that knowledge and saying, okay, if this were in any other situation, what would I do? And in any other situation, you would take a break, you would step back, you would offer resources and support, and that's what we need to do. And then finally, the last part of the SAMHSA definition is to resist. We need to resist re-traumatization. And again, in a service realm, that's easy. We're like, of course, service and help seeking shouldn't re-traumatize people. Honestly, our jobs shouldn't re-traumatize us. You know, doing our work should not be a traumatizing or re-traumatizing experience. So we need to look more structurally and we need to look more organizationally to figure out how we can resist re-traumatization of our staff so that we can continue doing this work. When you were talking, Becky, I couldn't help but think of the first time that I experienced this in my work and I was transcribing interviews over and over again, you know, exposed to content. And I just hit, it was one word, like one instance of something that happened and I just was not okay. And I remember thinking, keep pressing. You've got to meet this transcription deadline. You know, we have this deliverable that has to get out. And I stopped and I was like, I can't. 
And I went to my advisor and we made a plan and they responded so graciously, but we figured it out. But I think that initial wave of shame is exactly what I experienced. Yes, absolutely. I've heard that from so many people over the course of my career. I've experienced it personally in my career where the almighty deadline continues to be the focal point and the shame that we don't want to admit that something is problematic. And it is. All of us trip over something that hurts in different ways, shape, or form. And it's kind of unpredictable, I've seen, to know exactly what it's going to be. Sometimes things that you can hear 20 times, and then on the 21st time, the cumulative impact gets you. Or maybe it's a particular type of story or a particular detail. It's hard to know what it's going to be, but it's often going to be something unexpected. And there it is. You mentioned transcription. Transcription, it's the problem I have not been able to solve in my career. 30 years, I feel like I'm still chipping away at the problem of transcription because you have to have repeated, sustained exposure to traumatic material and you have to get it right. You know, we talk about verbatim transcription. It's like, yeah, verbatim transcription means you got to get every single word right. So you have to listen, re-listen. And when you have members of your research team do it, you are essentially burning them out and exposing them to so much traumatic material before the analysis even starts. So then I thought, oh, well, we'll outsource it. Well, is outsourcing an ethical thing to do? It's like, yeah, we'll just upload it to one of these dot-com services and hand it off to somebody who has no help and support. So I think transcription really is, is a challenge. I, I am curious and, and hopeful that some of the machine learning and automatic transcription might be able to help us with that. And the quality of that has definitely improved. However, people talk in different slang, dialects, have different ways of speaking that often gets um, mangled in machine transcription. But at the very least, I think it can drastically reduce the traumatic exposure for transcriptionists. Yeah, I might just kind of get that initial transcript that someone can check. And that's just a lower level then. It's potentially not having to be in it as much as if I was typing it word for word. Absolutely. I think that's it. That's a key strategy that is important for research teams to adopt. Absolutely. So Becky, you know, what we have been talking about is trauma-informed project management, but kind of unstated in this is vicarious trauma, right? Essentially that you're exposed to traumatic content and through that you may face traumatic reactions. They may arise as you go. So we know that you wrote a book that explores vicarious trauma that researchers may face and some potential approaches for mitigation. What inspired you to write that book? Firsthand personal experience, very straight up. That's that's how that book came to be. In 1996, I was a brand new assistant professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The ink was barely dry on my PhD, and I'm launching and forming my first research team. Forever grateful to those colleagues um, for taking a leap of faith with me, both in terms of what we did in that project, also in terms of working with a very, very new researcher. We were doing community-based recruitment in Chicago. We were interviewing sexual assault survivors, many of whom were African-American women, many of whom had very long, painful histories of trauma throughout their lives. So these interviews were complex. They were moving. Um, We had 
all kinds of different experiences that were shared with us. And that book came about from me as a very young scholar trying to hold it together for myself and hold it together for my research team. And what I realized pretty quickly in that project was that the almighty deadline couldn't be the the driving force in our in our project that we had to find ways of taking care of ourselves we had to find ways of debriefing i didn't get it quite right the first time i didn't get it right the second time or the third time and i think that's an important thing for researchers to learn that it is an evolving process you learn in each project things you do well and things you didn't do well and you have to learn from that and keep growing and changing So the book was my attempt to sort of concretize what we experienced and what we tried to take care of ourselves, to debrief, and to basically make space for the role of emotions in research. And that feels pretty easy to say in 2023. It was not back in 2000 when I was pitching this book to publishers, and they're like, you're going to write a book about what? I said, I'm going to write a book about how you, you know, feel lots of complex feelings in research and how you deal with that. And several editors were like, huh, interesting. That's not the way science works. I'm like, well, I guess you're not the editor or the publisher for me. So I kept going until I found, you know, the right publisher and the right editor who were really interested in the fact that this is kind of an unspoken part of research. And they were interested in having me speak it and put it on paper. What were the reactions from your colleagues at that time? I can imagine that they may have been diverse, some happy for this material to use on their project teams and other thinking that you're diluting research. Yes, the reactions were varied, but they were overwhelmingly positive. The book has actually managed to stay in print, which nobody expected. I didn't expect, my publisher certainly didn't expect And I think it stayed in print because it continues in a way that I find wonderful and happy to be kind of passed down from generations in research teams to sort of normalize, socialize, and talk about this. But at the time, most people also were very, very happy about it and said, oh my gosh, we're going to do a group read of this. This is really helpful. I felt like a failure. Good to know that that you also felt like a failure. Very normalizing. And I would say the reactions that weren't that were also kindly meant, that there were some senior folks in my field who acknowledged, yes, you've you've said the quiet part out loud, but they were a little worried for me, being that early in my career that I was going to be taken less seriously as a scientist, that it would affect my grant funding, that it would affect my reputation in the field, and that I wouldn't be seen as a serious psychologist or a serious researcher. So I appreciated those warnings. They were meant very kindly, and I took them to heart. And I probably overcompensated by doing a lot of very complicated quant work, uh, quantitative research early in my career to counterbalance that. But none of those warnings came to fruition. I turned out fine. Life turned out fine. And I think that that's also one of the enduring lessons is speak your truth and the world will just have to adapt. So thinking about, you know, everybody was waiting for this material to come out or, or, you know, saw the need for it, felt like it was speaking to a part of them that they had been thinking quietly. And I'm hearing you say that you've learned even more throughout the years uh, with more experience, with more research teams that you've worked with. What recommendations do you have for project directors or other leaders who are hoping to become more trauma-informed in their leadership style? 
first learn about trauma-informed, go back to the source materials. Again, I talked earlier about the SAMHSA definition of trauma-informed. I keep coming back to that as a touchdown because I think it really works. Now, obviously, that definition came out after my book, but it was one of those things when I read it, it was like, oh, somebody just put this all together in a beautiful way. Thank you very much. So I think it's important for leaders to learn about this. I hope my book would be a good resource to them. Another book that I think is a great resource is by Laura Vandernoot Lipsky. It's called Trauma Stewardship. I think that's also a great book. Um, I know a lot of research teams do that as a group read, but I think that's where you start is that you learn, which means you also have to put yourself in a place of vulnerability. And you have to be humble that you have to admit you don't know everything about this. I don't know everything about this. I'm constantly learning. And you need to have that kind of learning mindset to this that you will learn over time. And you have to realize that you will make mistakes. And that is hard in this space because the mistakes that you're making very likely will be not giving the kind of support that your team needs and that people you care about personally and professionally are hurting, and you didn't do as good a job as you could have in helping them. And that can be a really paralyzing thought. That can be a really paralyzing experience, not feelings you want to feel. And again, you layer that on top of what we do in research, which is, you know, be objective, be strong. You kind of push those feelings aside. And I think over time, I've learned that I just have to lean into that and to accept I do make mistakes, that some of my decisions didn't pan out the way that I hoped they would, and that people I care about personally and professionally went through some pretty tough times doing the work that we do. I can't prevent all of that. That's what it means to do this kind of work. But there was probably more I could have prevented. So I had to learn the power of saying, I'm sorry and I'm learning, and I'm growing, and I'm going to try things differently in the next project. Something that is kind of coming up as a theme across this series, we just recorded an episode that will be released later on around outreach and dissemination. And even there, they're saying the importance with community engagement is listening Mm -hmm. and emphasized that the process takes time. And what I hear you saying, Becky, is in some ways, it's really, again, slowing down and thinking before you start. And that was the same recommendation they had, kind of what can you do at the start while also acknowledging that you won't do it perfectly. Is that accurately capturing kind of what you're describing with how to set up research projects? Absolutely. That we spend 90% of our time setting up a research project, thinking through the research pieces the institutional review board approval, the mechanics of the recording. We obsess over the interviews itself or whatever method of data collection. And then we think a little bit about training. And that training is really often about fidelity to the protocol, making sure that people, whatever the protocol may be, for some, it is fidelity absolutely to word for word. For some, it's still fidelity to a much more open-ended, organic interview experience, but still fidelity to that. And what I've learned over time is is that you got to kind of change the ratios and how much percentage you put into the logistics, the fidelity to the interview, and pre-planning, pre-thinking about how to take care of your team. And I think one of the things that I've learned over time is is that you have to pay attention to the power dynamics 
in a team. And that's the mistake that I made early on was assuming people would come to me and say, hey, I need a break. Hey, this really impacted me. And people did. I'm very happy, proud of the kind of climate that we set in our research teams where people did feel comfortable doing that, but they didn't feel comfortable doing it all the time. And part of that's okay. I mean, people need privacy um, and people don't need to share everything that they're thinking and feeling. But it did occur to me that I'm asking people who I have power over to come to me and admit vulnerability. Because chances are in these research teams, the director does have some type of power over them. They're employees, they may be graduate student advisors, advisees, and it's hard for somebody in that kind of power relationship to go to somebody and say, I'm struggling. We want to create an environment where they do feel comfortable, but they won't always do it. So I think one of the things that research team directors need to do is think about Again, that sort of trauma proofing to say, okay, if nobody came to me structurally, how would I set this up so that they would still be getting the support and relief they need if for whatever reason they didn't feel comfortable talking to me and coming for a break? So simple things like that are you schedule breaks, you schedule rotations, you're on, you're off, you're on, you're off. You get variety in different types of activities that you do. So you do a little bit of this type of role that has a higher trauma exposure, and then you automatically move into a different role that has less trauma exposure. It's not something you ask for. It's not something you have to put your hand in the air for. It is just something that is part of the structure of the team. And I think that also really deeply communicates to members of your team I care. I understand there's going to be breaks. And if you need a break sooner than that, absolutely. Let's talk about it. But you know that you're not stuck and that you're going to get different types of experiences. And that was a very, very long, hard one lesson for me was to build that in structurally and not rely so much on the interpersonal dynamics. You need both. That's so important. Have you found a sweet spot for how long those rotations are? Or do they differ by project or do you just kind of? going to be honest here. I wing it. I think it depends on the interviews. I think it depends on the people. I think it depends on uh, what else they have on their plate, how many other projects they're juggling. So I think that is, um, I have not found the sweet spot and I encourage other people to Just look at what makes sense in your team, try it, try different things. Again, it goes back to that being humble, approaching it as a learning experience, being willing to accept that you make mistakes and that you need to keep trying and keep tinkering with it. I think one interesting component of this too, when you're specifically talking about training graduate students, but we can also think of this in the context of junior staff on research teams who are probably still figuring out what this looks like for them, discovering their boundaries through these processes as well. And so it's creating the space to allow staff to explore that on their own with scaffolding around them. So that way, when they bump up against those boundaries, they feel safe to say, okay, I found it, I'm done. Mm -hmm. But not being so prescriptive that there's not room to learn what that looks like for themselves. Absolutely. And I think this applies whether it's graduate students, staff on your projects, whoever it may be, people need time and space 
to grow, to learn. And, and the goal isn't to get people wrapped up in so much bubble wrap that they, that they <laughs> never bump up against something hard because then you don't learn your limits. Then you don't get those insights. And that's one of the things that I talked about in my book is, is that as hard as those moments are, they teach you something about what you're studying. That when you feel something deeply and when you feel that kind of pain and you get rattled, it is hard. But if you can sit with that emotion and let it marinate with you, and if you can take that emotion into your thinking space, my goodness, it is going to teach you so much and it is going to improve your work as a scholar, as a trainer. So there's a lot to learn in those feelings, and we can learn a lot about our substantive topic through those emotions. So the goal is not to prevent feeling. It's to give, as you said, the scaffolding and the support to feel in a way where it might be overwhelming, but it's not going to be overwhelming for a sustained period of time without help. I had the privilege of working on one of your research teams, and I remember we were doing case file review, and I remember we would meet as a team of all the folks that were doing it and kind of debrief about these things and and check in to see how everybody was doing. And one of my colleagues made a comment about how she thought a song, do you remember this? She was like, do you guys think this song is about child abuse? And you and I were like, nope. So we need you now to reflect on how you're feeling in a different way. We're raising some red flags. We're thinking that maybe this is a time for us to slow down and think about that and and increase the number of breaks that we're getting. And mm-hmm. I think it's also the experience you presented opportunities for us to think about our own experiences. So without saying like you need to take a break, it's like let's pause here because this might be indicative of something bigger and we all need to slow down. Like this is one of the warning signs that you should look out for. Yeah, and I think it's it gets easier over time to realize when when you need a break, when you need to slow down. And I try to stay pretty checked in with myself to know when I need a break. And if I need a break, chances are maybe somebody else does, not because I, you know, I'm a marathon runner, but just I'm human, they're human, we might all need a break. And different types of data collection feel differently. Um, mm-hmm. I recently wrote a book chapter reflecting on my book. So kind of a emotionally involved, revisited. And one of the things that I wrote about in that chapter is different data collection methods hit differently. And everybody talks about interviews. And so far in this conversation, we've there's sort of the simplicit assumption that we're talking about interviews. So I'm really glad, Hannah, that you brought up coding, coding of records, archival documents, official records. Those are dreadful. Sitting with a survivor, sitting with someone who's experienced any kind of trauma is a very, very emotional experience, but it's also a very profound one both ways. And I can't think of too many interviews in my life where I've ever come out feeling like I didn't have a real human connection with somebody. So there's always something that gives back in an interview. Coding a police report, coding a forensic report, coding a medical report gives you nothing back. It's a one-way transaction and it's hard. I was coding a couple hundred police reports at one point and I was coding them with some former law enforcement and we were sitting together and it was rough. It was a rough day. And I turned in the, my colleague, former retired law enforcement was reflecting on how hard it was and how difficult it was. And I was like, I mean, yes, this is hard, but you've seen so much, you know, just kind of 
chatting through that. And he's like, honestly, this is harder because you're seeing the failures one after another, after another hundreds in a day. Whereas when you're in the moment, you feel like you're doing something about it or you think that there could be a different outcome. And here we know that there can't be. I mean, it's what exactly what we talk about with vicarious trauma. It's that sustained, consistent exposure that can be so hard. Absolutely. And one of the things that's hard about coding is the volume is higher. Mm-hmm. So in a work day, how many interviews could you do is limited by the setup, the breakdown, the time that you interview. So the number of stories that you take into your life is limited necessarily. Mm-hmm. The number of failures and abuses that you take into yourself is limited. Encoding a stack of police reports or medical records or something, the number of things you can take into your life in an hour is exponentially higher. And I didn't do the math on that for the longest time. Um, And it was actually in the team that Hannah was part of where I was like, ooh, wait a minute. The volume here is really different because, again, I was still sort of thinking, oh, wow, we can code 100 in a day you know, what? Oh my gosh, why would you want to code hundred in a day? That's awful. So you have to kind of, again, try to put aside the efficiency and think about what does it mean to take that much garbage into your life? And again, not garbage in terms of a person, but in terms of, of reading how social systems twist what happens, how they fail victims, how they didn't do a good job, that over and over again becomes overwhelming. And I appreciate the flexibility to deal with that, how it makes sense for me, because, right, we all have different capacity for these things. And so I think, you know, I could read 100 in a day, but I need the next day off. Exactly. Whereas somebody else needs to read 50 across two days. And so on this same trip, I ended up being like, I'm going to crunch this into two days. And I left a day early. I was like, I got to go home now. (laughs) I just booked a new plane ticket. And I went home because I was like, I got to be done and I have to leave. And fortunately, the leadership on that project was really supportive of that approach. And they're like, do what you got to do, however it makes sense for you. Yeah. And when we were talking about what can leaders do, it's that kind of flexibility. It's also trusting your staff to let them know not to be paternalistic, maternalistic, to say, no, 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 you need to take a break. You need to do 50 now and 50 then. It, it is to trust that people know themselves or to give them space to try things. And if it doesn't work, that's okay. But let them try and let them figure out for themselves what is the best method of that exposure and managing that exposure. And I was thinking as we were chatting that the thing about archival data or case files or medical records is sometimes the resolution isn't in there. Oftentimes the resolution isn't in there or we don't know what happened next. And I think that's a difference as well. In interviews, so often we structure our protocols to end on something positive or to say like, okay, we've sat in this space for a while. What is one thing that you're proud of in your life? You know, we might ask these questions, but we don't get to do that when we're looking at existing records. And I think that's also part of what makes it so hard. I don't know what happened next or what the finality is there, which is oftentimes death. And so that in and of itself can be just devastating to sit with as we look at those failures. That's Mm -hmm. a really good point that we do schedule our interviews, both for our participants and ourselves to have some sort of a sandwich, you know, some good opening material, some good closing material. We really lean into the psychology of the interview to do that. Um, When you're coding an archival record, no, the, the record just ends. Case closed, case unfounded patient to cease. And we know from 
so many medical professionals that that's part of their burnout, right? Is like, I engaged with this person or law enforcement as well. I don't know what happened next. I don't know if they're okay. And I have felt that as a researcher. And I think it's important to acknowledge that of, yeah, we don't know what happened next. And so we have to sit in that unknown and just be there. Well, Becky, a question we ask all of our guests is, you know, if someone is starting to move towards trauma-informed research projects, they're wanting to put this into action, but they're feeling kind of overwhelmed because it's like, where do I begin? What recommendation would you have for them about where and how to get started? Learn, read. Again, I think Laura Vandernutlipsky's book, Trauma Stewardship, is a good place to start. I think my book, Emotionally Involved, is a good place to start. And then talk to your team. Talk to your staff, talk to colleagues, start small. You don't need to blow it all up and and try to do everything all at once. Ask them, bring them in. Think about the principles of community participatory action research. You bring people into the knowledge generation, you build them into the solutions, you work together. You can do that within your team too. Work together as a team. Ask what would be helpful. What would we like to do? mindful. Yes, there are power dynamics and maybe you won't get the full range of answers over time and that's okay. But at least you want to start engaging people and building some trust among them. And you need to share your own experiences too and normalize your own experiences. I'm hearing you say a little bit modeling trauma-informed approaches for team members as well and taking the time that you need and, and the space that you need to digest this material. Yes. So I try to be honest with my group about, yep, I'm not doing this for a while. I'm taking some time off. I'm not doing this. After this interview, I did you know X. After this round of coding, I did Y. So I try to share what my own strategies are to model that I'm intentional about that. They need to be intentional about that. And again, to normalize, this is what it means to do this work. I really love that. And some of it I've found again, defaulting to interviews, but has been when we're closing out an interview, you know, so often we have a debriefing afterwards with the interview team. And if I'm on that, I say, okay, I'm going to go do this next to transition. Do you have something in mind that you would like to share that you want to do? And if they say no, it's like, okay, that's fine. But it's creating that space of normalizing, like I'm about to take this transition and kind of encouraging that they do as well, if that feels like something that would be helpful to them. That's a great idea. I really support that kind of boundary setting and boundary transitioning of I was in this space. I am now leaving this space and I am now transitioning into a different time and space and activity. And that also makes it easier, I think, for people to cope with this because one of the things that we hear over and over again is is I took the story home with me. I took this thing with me. I kept thinking about it after hours and that's going to happen. There's, There's no two ways about it. But the extent to which we can make time and space for people to feel what they need to feel, to process what they need to feel during their work time, and then they can have a transition out of that in an intentional, say it out loud kind of way, it makes it easier in the long run. Absolutely. Something that Hannah and I have talked a lot about is lived experience and research. I also come up across that where people ask, did you have a survivor in this group? To which I usually bite my tongue because the first thing I want to say is, is, well, the epidemiological data tell us that if we have 
cisgendered women in this group, then we have X number of survivors. And then if we have trans, non-binary, or gender diverse folks, then we have X number in this group. There's survivors everywhere. And survivors bring their lived experiences into everything that they do. So it is challenging to, to navigate that path of we do want to center survivors, their knowledge, their wisdom, and we don't want people to feel like they must disclose in a setting that doesn't feel safe for them. And we need to find ways of doing that. And I don't, I don't know that there's a good solution here yet, but I bump up against that over and over again. Similarly, Becky, usually my response in my head is statistically we know. I think another key component of trauma-informed research is, is that we give survivors the choice of when and where they disclose. And that choice still applies to researchers and that we should not be forcing researchers who have histories of trauma and victimization to disclose that for whatever reason, for credibility, to argue that they did have a survivor on their research team, that they do know what they're talking about or whatever it may be. And that all survivors, whatever their role may be, have the right to that autonomy and have the right to that choice of when and where they disclose and to whom. So this is something we still have to work through as as a research community is how and when researchers who have that victimization history choose to disclose or choose not to disclose and to make both of those choices okay, that you don't have to disclose or that you disclose selectively. Um, I know many folks who will disclose and have mutual disclosure, mutual vulnerability in an interview, but may not in other professional settings and conference presentations and writings. And I think we need to make that okay. Um, Because again, a trauma-informed approach means that we allow survivors choice and autonomy to whom they disclose and when they disclose. And I think it's critical to have these perspectives on teams, right? And sometimes the researcher in the setting doesn't want to be the person to bring that perspective, right? And as we've discussed, nobody is 100% objective or neutral in these settings, but they're centralizing their identity as a researcher and not as a survivor of some type of victimization. And that should be valid as well, uh, regardless of whether or not they have that trauma history. Absolutely. Well, Becky, is there anything else that you would like to leave our listeners with today? Take care of yourself. We talk about self-care. We sometimes joke about self-care or sometimes glib and flip about self-care, but we need to take it seriously. We have this one precious life. And if you're choosing in this one precious life to spend time helping people, learning from people, being part of spaces that have so much pain and suffering and trauma. That's a gift for your one precious life. But in this one life, you also need to experience joy. And it's okay to experience joy. And you need to seek out joy. And you shouldn't feel guilty about it. And you shouldn't feel bad about it. And you shouldn't have that moment where, oh my gosh, I heard this horrible thing today. And now I'm going to go do this wonderful thing that I really enjoy that's okay. Both of those things can be true. Hold both of them in your head simultaneously. You were with somebody who was suffering and later in that same day, you experienced joy. You need to have both of those things. So you need to cultivate joy, whatever that might be for you. I mean, 
we've talked about vulnerability throughout this episode. So Brene Brown naturally comes to mind as one of those uh, key researchers in vulnerability. And she talks about how you cannot selectively numb. You numb your pain, you numb your joy. And so I think that's part of what I'm hearing you say, Becky, of, okay, we need to take care of ourselves. We need to experience both say, this is real. This pain is real. This trauma is real. My vicarious trauma is real. And I also need to live into life. And almost in some ways, I view that as a way to honor that I am alive, (laughs) that I have lived, that amidst this pain, amidst seeing some of the worst parts of this world, and whether sitting across the table or reading those narratives, that I can step from that and experience joy in life. And that's part of honoring each other. It is. It's part of honoring each other. It's part of honoring survivors. And it's part of living a really rich and full and interesting life that you you experience very, very hard things and very, very wonderful things. And both of them are part of your life. What a way to end it. Well, Becky, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today about trauma-informed project management. It was a joy. You are very welcome. I enjoyed this very much. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your platform of choice. I'm Jacqueline Houston-Kolnick. And I'm Hannah Feeney. And this has been another episode of Just Science. Next week, Just Science will be sitting down with Dr. Noni Gaylord-Hardin and Dr. Vicki Johnson-Lawrence to discuss outreach and dissemination in a community setting. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.